Hello and welcome to the Paradigm Shifting Podcast. I'm thinking of spoiling things. What's the paradigm we are shifting today? Well, as you know on this cast, we usually tackle the big screens. The biggest screens, occasionally the IMAX screens. But now, from big to small, we're taking our first to taking our first foray into the televisual. Um, which we'll talk about. We've done feature films, motion pictures. We're open to documentary yet. This is more of a documentary hybrid, you could say. But it turned out that I had watched a television show that Vaughn had watched. So we're talking about TV. I'm Stephen, as always, and with me is Vaughn. Hello! Hello, Stephen. I'm sick today. So yeah, if, I sound, yeah. if I sound off, that's why. If you sound... Okay, because people might expect... People may have heard you sound off at some point, so that that, that makes sense. Um, <laughs> don't worry about that. Um, yeah, bro. Um, so oh, it's good to be back. It's good to be back. It Vaughn. is. I really it's good to have enjoyed... you back. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed the bit episode I listened to um, while I was away. I did not listen to all of it, for at that point I had not seen all of the films. Uh, bodies, Bodies, Bodies has not had a UK release yet. I listened That's to the Prey segment. Um, and this is the Lad Goodbye segment. Um, so I would actually, first of all, like to have a little discussion with you about Prey to get uh, my little thoughts out there for a tiny bit, if that is okay. Yeah, go for it. I would like to hear your thoughts, since I know um, your thoughts are a little bit different than mine. Yeah, I, I, I mainly agree with you with Prey. So, like, you have very much the opinion that leaner, tighter, throwback, what Predator could be, should be, was kind of always, this is yeah. the second best Predator film. And of the ones I've seen, I've not seen Predators, I've seen the rest. Um, this is definitely the second best Predator film, but that's only for me because only Predator 1 and this are, are good. And I'm not yes. the biggest Predator 1 fan, though I need to revisit it, I've not watched it for a long time. Um, I agree with you. This is a, a paired back, really interesting really novel but nicely clean Predator movie um, my issue with it is I think the right move for the franchise is to go back to basics but I feel going back to basics in a much more promising location a much more promising time period means that's a opportunity. if you're going to pare down and make it more streamlined then don't have the more ambitious framing around it and the whole time okay. I want more from that um, I know I watched the Comanche Dar but I don't think you did um, I did not. or at least not the first time you mentioned that on the cast um i though there is a weirdness to the dubbing i mean you and i watch kind of a lot of like euro trash of like this yeah. dubbed anyway so i'm kind of like used to weird dubbing that's weird but i think if the film has a a suit that works for it it's about juxtaposition and language the stuff of language is quite cool the fact that the the trappers in it speak a old dialect of french they're not yeah. even speaking french they're speaking like an archaic dialect of it so you've got language play and like different cultures not being able to intersect and the predator like not using language per se but having symbols and you've got the idea of like communication through violence communication right. through like action around so the comanche really adds to that because it one it continues the theme of like communication and language and cultural difference, which I think is really important. But I think where it really works is why the setting works is the gulf between high technology predator and low technology um, of the group that the predator is attacking. Yeah. And you need the verisimilitude there. And the moment they are speaking the language which befits their culture, that gulf is exacerbated as opposed to being like, it's really weird that you're speaking modern English. Um, I also think, based on the subtitles, the script doesn't seem amazing on a dialogue level. And I think the clumsy yeah. tub actually hides a little bit of that. Um, you're not hearing kind of like clunky action movie performances as much because right. you're more just hearing words you understand and you're seeing it more as, dare I say, scene setting. But then from that, I think maybe it makes more pronounced... Um, the issues with it's not hitting the culture aspect as well as it could do. But I thought it was a good movie. I did enjoy it. I haven't thought about it yeah. since I watched it, I'll be honest. Uh, but yeah, I, 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 I agree with that. I do think 
I think the film's biggest miss, and I do, I mean, at least commercialism-wise, I understand why they didn't go this route, but I do wish that it yeah. was just filmed in Comanche. Yes, And totally. I think that would... Because I think the difference between, like, the, the Euro stuff that we watch, like Giallo and stuff, is, like, all of that is dubbed. And that's, yes, like, there's about, an easier yeah. suspension of disbelief because you're not watching, like, there's no ultimate version, really. Like, you watch yeah. whatever version is, is best for you to consume. Whereas this, it's like, I wanted to watch it in English because that's what it was filmed in. And I think if it had just been filmed in Comanche, then there would be, it would flow a uh, lot better. And I think that that dialogue stuff would be more naturally hidden and that would just make it flow a lot better i agree i Um, agree i agree and as you said we watched the best version we have available we'll get back to that a bit later i think in in the emails um towards the end of the ways to approach the best thing but that's a little tease for the end of the podcast um anyway so that's my thoughts on prey um the lad goodbye which i only watched because of the podcast really um so i love that that. like that was um, the goal really yeah, so obviously Cormac and Jack watched it. Um, so I guess I would have got around to it eventually, but like there was such a quick snowball from Cormac watching it, Jack watching it, you watching yeah. it, the podcast, that it was this perfect song of being like, the person watched it, liked it. We liked it enough as a podcast about it. I was like, okay, absolutely. and also I wanted to listen, so I had to watch it. Um, what a fabulous film. What an absolutely it really fabulous is. film. It's so wonderful. Yeah, I, mm. I just, I love it so much. And it's like, so wonderful to see like you and just like, there's been such a great response to like, just i mean the film in general like between us but then also to the podcast and like communicating yeah. with the guys that made it and it's just like it's been so positive and great yeah my review of it is coming up soon which i know that you've edited and read through um and i just i i what so quickly i want to talk about what you said about the response i love this one to get because people i didn't expect to like it have really really liked it yeah um, friend of the show um para who is a person that is really astute at finding places where art does not work or art could be better um their like full-hearted endorsement of this like was another indication of being like this is a special interesting different thing yeah and it really really is and like as i get to my review it, it, it at the beginning it's very much like love of cinema homage i was watching that right. awesome wells clip earlier today when he says like homage <laughs> should be ripped out of so i thought of a thought of this podcast there um because i'm about to talk about this um so it starts off as you're like ah yeah mo- people love movies we've made them those movies um i don't think you've seen the long goodbye um i have not uh, the Long Goodbye is absolutely spectacular. It is it's just a, a favourite of mine. The one thing that movie does that this should do, though it's really dumb, is the best thing about The Long Goodbye is they're about... The song The Long Goodbye plays through most of the movie, but orchestrated in different styles. And it's oh, okay. just so amazing every time. So yeah. I did miss I did miss a version that was like, It's a lad goodbye, <laughs> and it happens every day. I was like, I wanted that at some point, but <laughs> that would have been too much. If it had happened, I'd have hated it. Um, so I think Liam yeah. wanted it. So you start as like homage. It's a bit like Stonerish. I wasn't sure if it was quite for me, but I kind of respected it. And then it, without ever drastically changes becomes something really kind of like meaningful and lovely of this like really like a meditation yeah. without being polemical without being like lecturing or speaking about it on male friendship male relationships are core to most films because films are very um male-centric yeah. centric yeah yeah, yeah. um but like male intimacy i think is often missed out on um it's often presented as a weird kind of machismo it's often twisted yeah. into like bromance stuff which is just stupid this actual tender close friendship between two guys who don't actually realize the depth of their feeling until that's taken away from them i think that is 
a very valid masculine experience to present. It reminded me, though this is pushing it a bit too far, of films like Moonlight in that sense, of like getting into the sensitivity of male. I get what you're saying. Yeah. That a lot of films don't actually go on to. And that sense of like, absence makes a heart grow fonder. And that being like, it is a romance, but it is a, a romance, a love story where that love is friendship as opposed to anything else. Um, which actually, to make a weird comparison, is like I'm Frozen, I'm sure that you've seen. One yeah. of the cool things about Frozen, um, which is a pretty good movie, is that, yes, it is a film about like love saving everything, but it's about familial love as opposed to yeah. um, romantic love. So yeah, The Lad Goodbye is is, is great. Um, I don't want to talk too much because the review's going to be up and you've got a podcast on it. Right. Um, so should we get into the grab bag of recent releases? Yeah, let's do it. we got three, three things to talk yeah, about, unless I'm can... miscounting here. So can you talk to me about Bullet Train, please? Which looks a bit, I don't know, it looks... I've not seen much of this guy's work, because he was the Deadpool 2 guy, right? Yes. Yeah, so I saw Atomic Blonde, which I quite liked. His... Yeah, Atomic Blonde is pretty good. Atomic it's Blonde not great, but it's definitely... pretty good. Right. It's Atomic Blonde, to me, is like the, a really good example of... I guess style over substance is kind of the best way to put it, because it is a very stylish movie, and... Mm-hmm. It it definitely tries to have more like it's almost a failure I the of style substance. Was not quite what I thought it was going to be though. As well, I thought the style was because obviously it's a John Wick like it was the first yeah. like it's John Wick but and this time it's just John Wick but it's a lady um, which ultimately is reductive but that's how it presented itself. Right. Um, I I was surprised by like how kind of like faux gritty it was. I thought it was going to be a bit more campier like John Wick has become. Yeah. But then I forget that the first John Wick isn't as campy as John Wick 2 and 3 are. It's Definitely. more like it has campy edges. So I agree that Atomic Blonde is stylish, but from the title and trailers, I thought the style would be more like what Bullet Train looks like, more into the kind of like, I don't know, Guy Ritchie-isms, etc. More yeah. know, affected than it actually is. More yeah. Like Deadpool 2. Yeah, so uh, David Leach to me is like, he's an okay director. He definitely is a strong director of action when it gets to the point where it is just action. And I mean, he... There's that stairway I, fight in Atomic Blonde that absolutely rules, for example. Right, yeah. And I believe, if my memory serves correct, he co-directed, but is not, like, officially credited on the first John Wick. Um, I thought so, so because they did yeah. very much, like, promote that as being, like, from one of the minds behind. Right. So he did work on, on that first John Wick movie, and so you can see that carry through through a lot of his other movies where... You, when it does just get into that action, it's fantastic, but he's not a good writer. And that is like the, that's the unfortunate thing. And he also did um, the Fast and Furious spinoff Hobbs and Shaw, which is ah, okay. I didn't know that. not very good, but <laughs> I like the action in that movie. It's pretty fun. It's so it's like, there's, there's, he's got a, a stylistic touch that I do admire to a point, but a lot of it is just like the the narrative is just drags a lot and bullet train is i would say probably my favorite of his movies and that's i mean not a whole lot to say <laughs> because i don't love really any of his movies but yeah when it does get to the action the action's great and there's great stuff in there but it is so dragged down by the presentation because like you you mentioned guy Ritchie, and it is very yeah, indebted okay i that was to I that was style see- I couldn't tell from the trailer if it was going to be... I mean, because to an extent, Guy Ritchie is very much like the British early Tarantino. The kind yeah. of like the 
pulp fiction-y style of things. They're very, very different, but it's the same film bros at university that got the posters. Um, I mean, there's this idea, isn't there, of being like, and, uh, you know, I was probably one of those people, of like, you go to someone's dorm room, and I'm going to guess in the States, it's, there's your pulp fiction poster. Um, yeah. Maybe Fear and Loathing, I don't know what else. You go into an, an English dorm room, there's your train spotting poster, and there's your Snatch or Lockstock poster. Like, that right. is, like, I think, like, given out by the university, being like, do you like movies? Are you yeah. male? There you go. Here's a Lockstock and like a Barrels poster. Um, put it up. So there is there is that idea there. So I wasn't drawing the trailer if it was going to be that, or if it was going to be, like, a Ryan Reynolds-alike, and I was scared that it was Ryan Reynolds-alike. Boy, speaking of Ryan Reynolds... <laughs> Uh, this movie shoehorns in a cameo from Ryan Reynolds, of course. No, okay. Oh, actually, it sure does. I actually did not know that. Okay, well, spoilers, but it's, we are thinking of spoiling things. Yeah, um, it, I mean, it's like barely even worth, like, it's it's barely, like, a, it's, it's such a tiny moment. And it's just like a moment where it's the thing that movies do now, where they just show you a person that you know, and you go, oh, cool, a person that I know. And it's not anything more than that, you know? Ready actor um, one. Um, so you mentioned Guy Ritchie. And every time names come up we've not spoken about before, I'm always intrigued by kind of our relationship with them. So I don't think we've ever spoken about Guy Ritchie. What is your view on the films, so. the I, oeuvre of? I'm not totally familiar with Guy Ritchie, but what I've seen from him I do like. But it's kind of the same It's kind of the same thing as David Leach, where it's like he has a, a very distinct style yep. um, that you either kind of like or you don't like and i like it for the most part but a lot of the times the substance and the narrative ends up dragging the rest of that down um i like his two sherlock holmes movies a lot i um, like I, one of them i'm not even sure if i got through the second one i think i watched it at work yeah most know, people don't like that second one um i rewatched them both a couple of years ago and i was like yeah i both i still both like like both of these i they're not great but they're fun movies that i kind of have like this sort of childhood I really fondness like for one. i guess I, my, my criticism of the first one seeing it and i saw it when it came out so i was you know i was like teen i guess i think it's like 2009 yeah um, i think so so i mean i'm not gonna work out how old i was but you know i was, I was a teen um an older teen and let's just say um and so when it came out and i remember thinking i like some of the idea i mean i like sherlock holmes it wasn't sherlock holmes and that's fine with me it can be its own thing yeah i didn't like seeing every fight scene twice that was kind of annoying i get the whole thing of being like i'll do this and it's like well you just show me the thing twice that's irritating yeah. um and my other like enduring thought was in the year 2009 it was a summer release i believe i watched it in france uh, random color there um and the opening it pans across the city i remember sitting there being like man i'd love an assassin's creed game set in london and then years later vaughn what happened you got one and wasn't it terrible one. no the london one's pretty good the london one's oh, okay bad. i yeah. thought that was the one that was like plagued with glitches and no that's stuff. unity and people oh, often okay. people often think of unity first um, gotcha. when i say the london one but no it was not so i'm not go. super familiar with assassin especially the later assassin's creed games i'm not super familiar with so that was i feel like um that was like the last one syndicate this is the last one that, okay remembering properly that was like an assassin's creed ass assassin's creed game and because gotcha. i think then we got into origins after that i may be missing one out in between um so that was like the last hurrah it was a little bit too much going on but it was cool the world was cool it was bad it was i don't i actually quite like unity but this is not the assassin's creed cast there'll be enough time for that i'm replaying ac2 at the moment because i went to florence and venice recently so i've been walking around being like look told my wife being like look, we went there she's like yes we did go there i'm like look and this is like yeah it's fun so there you go uh, Bullet train. Ra ra random aside, it probably feels like I'm 
feeling i feel like i'm less being less participatory but like i'm trying not to laugh because if i laugh too much then i'm gonna start coughing and i don't want to do that so if it seems like i'm not laughing then that's why it's i i am Um, used to getting no laughter response it will not stop me it has never stopped me so bullet train um which you kind of like now i've got a question for you is the reason you kind of like it because america has terrible trains and this is escapism for you yeah, I mean, partially, yeah. Mm. Uh, I, I definitely so do the, wish that we had more trains content? here. How's the train content? Uh, the train, train content's good. I mean, it is. it does a good job of being almost entirely contained within the train. Um, like a bus. I like a train movie, as you know. Yeah. Like, I mean, we've. I mean, a, a joint love of ours is Horror Express, the thing on a train. <clears throat> a Horror um, Express is great. Um, I hear, I mean, I'm going to reinterpret your review, because you, you spoke about maybe it gets overloaded by characters and digressions. Would you yes. say there are too many strangers on this train? Bottom chish. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, it it does though. It does get overloaded in that way um, because, and it, I understand the way it has to do it, but it's like the way it's constructed has to. Every time a character is introduced, it has to tell basically their their entire backstory because all of the characters are sort of interwoven. So it's like so every, cats. So it's like what? Sorry. It's like cats. Yes, exactly like cats. Everyone sings their This um, Is My Name song. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds I'm um, Ryan Reynolds. I'm Annoying Cat. I'm irritating. Basically. So every character shows up and it does like the Guy Ritchie like freeze frame nameplate intro kind of thing. I'm Giza um, McGee. Why is he called basically. that? Let me tell you. <laughs> so they show up and then it goes into their whole backstory. And then often that character dies minutes later. Oh, so, so that it's character, like Suicide Squad. <laughs> the character becomes so quickly irrelevant but their backstory has to be relevant. And so it's like this weird kind of empty middle space where I don't care about the character, but you have to know their backstory in order for their backstory to become relevant later. And it just gets really messy, I think. And it's just, it takes away from the fun stuff, which is the action. I think that if it was more focused on the action and less focused on like trying to create this really interesting interconnected plot then it would be a more enjoyable movie um because when it is just action it's fun and i like brad pitt's character a lot and i think it suffers from the same problem that i mentioned this in my review but like that that a lot of modern action movies do where all the characters are basically just written the same they have the same sense of humor and the same you know style of of dialogue but brad pitt's just a good enough of an actor that he kind of rises above that um so he's a great character to follow, but it's got ups and downs, you know? I think it's it's a fun movie, but it's not memorable enough to, like, rewatch it or anything. I, I don't think it's film I'm ever going to get to. Actually, I might get to it for Stacks Duties towards the end of the year, but it's it's something that I've just, like, I don't know, like, put on the brakes. For... Have you been on the bullet train, by the way? I have not. I have been. The bullet train is generally incredible. So when I went to Japan in 2019, we went, uh, we had a train pass, because you can get them out there, and we went around on the bullet train. It's so nice. cool. Yeah. For one, they they call it the Shinkansen because it's obviously Japanese, and that sounds way cooler. They're like Shinkansen, and they say other things. And also, something like play a little chew when you arrive in the station. So, so much of like Japanese like technology culture is so like like gamified and that kind of right. way. It's, it's it's so awesome. Um, I don't know. Europe has great trains, mainland Europe. England does not. And having been on lots of trains recently, um, yeah. Did you know that? So there's there's an incredibly fast train in France called the TGV. Have you heard of this? I've not heard of it. So the it's so the Eurostar goes for the tunnel, but the TGV is their like city connecting trains, really okay. fast. Um, and TGV stands for Tran Grand Vitesse. I know what you're thinking. That sounds really fancy, doesn't it? The Tran Grand Vitesse. 
I'm sure that it's not fancy at all. That stands for very fast train. <laughs> I love that. And just just imagine if if like a train came out, a train came out released, and we just called it like the, you know, the VFT. I was like, what's a v- oh, very fast train? It's the very fast train. It's just a train that goes around very very fast. So it's I just, like the I, just, I, love I recently so I recently kind of came across. Um, like people talking about like telescopes and stuff, and I like how astronomers name telescopes where they're just like, "This is the very large telescope, and this is the extremely large telescope." Oh yeah, it's basically like that. The larger I they get, it's so just much. like names like that. I it's just the enormous telescope and stuff. When it's abstracted for another language, it's it's like when you see people with um, there's a meme accounts for ages of because people like to have like japanese or chinese lettering on them as tattoos and there was that yeah. joke of what if we just put random just like english words and right. how dumb it looks and be like that's just really stupid but yeah there's this like weird like it is an exoticism of being like it sounds so fancy that language oh that's really kind of like stupid yeah and so bullet train um i'm gonna take the the i'm gonna you know take it over to my track for a second i'm gonna talk about the new hong sang su movie oh go for it Please yeah, do. so I watched the novelist's film, I got the opportunity to, which, um, as you know, and as this probably knows, I'm a huge Hong Sang-soo fan. I have seen all of his films. He's pretty much my favourite working director at the moment. Um, for those who do not know, he is a, um, from the Republic of Korea, um, he is a enormously prolific director. Um, so he's got 32 films, I think, including shorts, um, to his name. Um, he's made five in the last two years, including one short, maybe four. Um, so a, a lot of movies yeah. um, like his most notable is I forget the way it's ra- it's round it's a it's a Walt Whitman quote so I think it's on the beach at night alone or it's on the beach alone that at sounds night. right yeah yeah it's one of those two I forget which is it's an absolutely fabulous film that's his most known and right now wrong then um, and the woman who ran probably being his like three woman who ran was my first was my gateway into, into his my films. first as well um, it's a woman who ran is I just it, it, it was a different type of film to watch and from that I explored his whole catalog yeah. I, just, I just loved it so much um, my favorite being the day he arrives um, Hong Sang Soo like makes very literary and dense works that feel effortless um, he yeah. is the person kind of like Ozu where like you see a frame or a sequence and you know the director straight away because he has such a distinct style um, to the point where everyone says he makes the same film but the beauty is it's the same film but different every time it's it, it's difference through sameness and in a very literary way his techniques become devices so in the same way that personification has a distinctive poetic use a zoom in a Hong Sang-soo film you know it means something so the more Hong Sang-soo you watch the more you get into the language of, and it becomes this really rewarding thing of knowing how that relates to that. He plays a lot of like overlapping characters and plots and subversions. And I, I'd be fascinated to see what someone thought of the novelist's film if it was their first Hong Sang-soo film. I think they would like it because I think it's very, very good. But I think with every Hong Sang-soo film now, you're like, if you've watched his other films, this is so rewarding because there's yeah. so much interplay with his wider films. And this one is so much about that. Um, you've seen a bit of his work, right? Like, like Yeah, a, a I, I think I've seen three or four um three off the top of my head being uh the woman who ran yeah. uh, hill of freedom and claire's camera so and claire's camera actually well, i think we'll talk about later when we talk about the rehearsal because claire's camera is about the idea of how cameras change reality but do they or do we act differently yeah. when we are being filmed so again these heady ideas are in hong sang su films but they're this incidental brilliance um this film if it's about anything and it very much is is about a love of life and spontaneity, um, which I think is really lovely because his films can be quite formally rigid. Um, this is a film which I wrote about, about how it's, it's quietly revolutionary. So a, a classic Hong Sang-soo film is just showing that men are trash. Um, and we see yes. that men just use their platform to just belittle and destroy. And there's a great bit where a guy starts to do that. And then our main character, a woman, 
just calls him out straight away. And you're like, that's not where this scene would go normally. There's a scene later in the film where they're sat around drinking soju, as is the way in a Hong Kong Soo film. And as you know, in a Hong Kong Soo film, they drink beer or soju and secrets come out. Yeah. And they start to get drunk and a guy starts telling a story, a story and the woman's like, yeah, I don't want to hear it. And he just doesn't tell it. And it's just like this. Oh, that's great. It's just, if you are a fan of his work, it's this like, right. oh, that's so clever. And the film keeps doing this like edging into the cinematic um, edging into like arcs and things and the whole film i didn't mention this before but the whole film is about like she keeps having these serendipitous moments that seem so contrived she keeps bumping into friends from or acquaintances and it's this like it's trying to push a contrived and filmic and strict structure and she just keeps just stepping away from it stepping away from it that's There's one bit towards the end that's this fourth wall breaking beautiful moment that's actually quite similar to the, the snail short that he did in a way that i you should watch yourself this moment it's it's beautiful um if you're like kim and he is like she is starting in this sequence like it's just it's just wonderful and in that sequence the film becomes formally dexterous as well like there's a distinct change that i will not say what it is and that sequence though it's kind of like outside of the film reflects back on what it was all beforehand like oh this is about spontaneity this is about capped moments and it reflects forwards to wait what is this what does that mean what's going on here so it's another film about it's a film about someone making a film so it's still about Hong Sang-soo making films but now it's like making films differently yeah being the same but different doing intentional it's it's just brilliant and it's also just a lovely because he's so good at this every conversation is real and shows you people and relationships I I I watched it, really enjoyed it, started writing about it, and was like, oh, that was amazing. I did, it, his films just grow. I love them so much. So yeah, um, the novelist film, I can't recommend it enough. When you get the chance to watch it, please do. It's, it's fabulous. Yeah, I, I think Hong Sang-soo fascinates me so much just in the way that like his his whole filmography is like so cohesive in that way, like that they're yeah. all in conversation with each other. Like I'm so fascinated by that because then the like you talk about like it gives him the ability to like subvert his own expectations, which is just yeah. like... I don't see a lot of other directors do that in that way. And, like, and, he's and so we'll talk about subversive films later um, in the emails. This yeah. idea of like, what is subversive? So we'll get to that. Um, and maybe, I don't know if I'll mention Hong there, but Hong definitely has that like subversive right. idea. Um, so yeah, that's, that's another film. Um, please tell me about Glorious, because I have no idea what this film is. Genuinely. Though, I... based, on, based on your star rating alone, I'm going to say more of a glorious mess. It's Yeah, it's not great. Um, it's... I, I'm trying to think of like what the elevator pitch of this film would be. Basically, a guy gets trapped in a rest stop bathroom. Um, there's a stall with a glory hole, and J.K. Simmons' oh God, voice starts okay, coming I wasn't out of it. Expecting that kind of glorious. <laughs> oh yeah, um, J.K. Simmons' voice starts coming out of it and starts talking to him. And quickly, this guy realizes that uh, the voice is basically uh lovecraftian um elder god that is in this bathroom with him you're selling it and i'm I'm into it glorious right like the idea of it is pretty compelling and it makes a lot of sense there's it's it's got because it is sort of like this bottle film where it's just all taking place pretty much in this bathroom it it really sells like this idea of this location and there's good atmosphere to it because it's like it's gross and it's grimy and they have this great sort of like crude drawing of like this this eldritch demon like on the bathroom stall wall um so you you get sold on a location and of course it's jk simmons voice so you're i mean and you have to enjoy that 
J.K. Simmons, apart from one film, being in the Ricardos, always brilliant. Like, even if the film yes. is not very good, he is always brilliant. But that's probably because Aaron Sorkin is just terrible at making movies. Um, so uh, yeah, I, yeah, very much you love s- J.K. Simmons. Again, Go Sorkin... Ahead. Sorkin did write some good movies back in the day. They're saying he used to be good, but his directorial run has been just abysmal, I think. And yeah. again, when he does not have other creatives, he does a thing um, and he is just like not rendering at all. And, you know, I, there's a space for that conversation another time. We'll, Sorkin will make a film. We'll talk about it. We'll get to that. Yeah, we, we so, definitely will. It seems like he just keeps making them and they keep ugh. just coming out and I don't even really realize it. But yeah. anyway. Yeah. Lovecraft. Um, who is banned? Yeah, so I mean, Lovecraft, you're not allowed to listen. Continue. Um, and and I'm a huge fan of not Lovecraft as a person because he's a terrible person, no, but yeah. of of his work. <laughs> no racist. Um, I am I am a very big fan of his work, and it's a very distinct style. And so many people try to emulate it and adapt it, and so many people do not succeed. It is very yes. difficult to adapt for a lot of reasons. You've got I mean, your castle I think, freaks at one end of being like right. No, I mean, I, castle freak is great, but it's not actually Um well, that's like that kind of thing works because it's basically not an adaption, right? Like, no, it's not. It's, 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 not, just, it's not even It's just Lovecraft because they wanted to put his name on something. Yes, because because um, Stuart Gordon is involved. That's why. <laughs> but like, right. Stuart Gordon is adapting Lovecraft because From Beyond, From Beyond being one of the great Lovecraft movies. Oh yeah, brilliant. And and I think that it does depend on also the story that you're choosing to adapt of Lovecraft's. But a lot of it is, I mean, just on a base level, a lot of it is that Lovecraft's writing stories that are five pages ten pages you know they're, they're short yeah. stories and that's inherently difficult to then turn into a 90 minute or 120 minute movie yeah thankfully Certainly glorious is only like is only like 80 so it does have an advantage there that it's just it's it's as short as it can be really a but, novelist's film is also like 80 sub 90 minutes <laughs> so you could just watch that instead right i would advise that having not even seen that movie um but the other challenge with lovecraft is that it's it's very specifically written and it's just a lot of it is not really intended to be visualized in the way that it's written. Oh yeah, like so much of Lovecraft is about the unknowable and the unpicturable. Right. I was I was surprised how well Color Out of Space worked. I mean these are Color Out of Space is brilliant. It's it's I I don't love it as much as you do, but it is good. Um I think like these aren't Lovecraft movies, but the get Lovecraftian of you've got on the ones I mean I'm gonna I will stand up for Annihilation for a second. Yes, Annihilation not as good as the book, but Annihilation does get into that kind of like pushing into the thing beyond comprehension is the scary thing. Right. And I think the ultimate example of that is Altered States. Like, Altered States being, like, oh, the, the, the unknowable cosmic, like, mind-shattering. Right. That can be done cinematically so well because it's about, like, just using cinema cinema's capability for ambiguity to create horror. So is this more of the Altered States, I don't know what's going on and my brain is exploding? Or is this more of the, it's from beyond and pineal glands are busting out and it's body horror? It's, it's difficult. It's... Because I, I think that there's a lot to be said for Lovecraft versus Lovecraftian. Yes. And I think that Lovecraftian is often much more successful in that just taking inspiration from the way that his stories are structured and the sort of those general yeah. ideas and turning it into something different versus directly trying to adapt something. Yeah. Weirdly, I don't think this is really either because okay. the the Elder God that um jk simmons plays which i'm not gonna bother trying to pronounce of course because it's a bizarre name purposely unpronounceable as is another lovecraft kind right of idea. and Language. it's kind of a joke in the movie but you know watch the movie i guess um it, it, the character that he plays is an actual lovecraft character and so there's 
lore there and yeah. his that character's father is Cthulhu. Um, <laughs> and so that's... They allude to his father in the movie and, like, how his father wants to destroy the world. And so, like, the thing is that... That's really dumb. It's, it's really dumb because he's talk he's like the god of destruction but he decided that he wants to save humanity so he needs this sounds this... like the worst parts of neil gaiman to me it's pretty stupid and I, re- it's... And I really like neil gaiman but this sounds like neil gaiman what it could be if it was worse his ideas of being like it's like mythology right but it's not. like yeah it's just to me i don't like this idea of like nitpicking out of lovecraft what you want and then just yeah. using it and like it it becomes so surface level because it's not really interested yep. in actually any of the actual Lovecraft ideas. It just wants to sort of adopt that aesthetic Ugh. and oh, there's purple lights and tentacles and <laughs> it's Lovecraft and it's just like Eldritch, Eldritch, I say. Right, and I'm getting I'm talking about this movie too much at this point. Yeah, the, it, it, the third act to me. twist is colossally stupid and I think ruins what could <laughs> at least be a decent movie, but. Yeah, it's 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 always great on this show when I hear about a film and I'm like, oh, I didn't know about this and it's great. You got the lag by I'm like the worst right. example of never heard of it. Oh, it's crap. Never mind. <laughs> There's that, like, yeah, just this like complete rollback. Um, which actually I will allude quickly. So we're not doing an episode about this, but I went to go see the invitation. No, not that the invitation. The new the invitation, not related to the film the invitation. Um, you've not seen the invitation, right? I mean, you've seen the invitation. I presume you've not seen the invitation. I have not seen the Dracula Invitation movie. Yeah, um, well, spoilers. Um, yeah, The Invitation is a Dracula film. I'm going to say very, very quickly, because my review will be up on the site soon, I think. Um, it's a Dracula film. There's, all right, there's a, there's, there's a line in my review that I'm going to quote, because I was actually very, very proud of it. So let, let me let me actually be that person, and then we'll give you a sneak peek of a line. I even, like, sent it to Calvin, because I was like, I was quite, I thought this, this, I was very proud of myself. Occasionally, you know, you send the boss, you're like, look, my work's good, boss. Um... So, but I want to get the wording right. Oh. Because I, I can compare it to Dracula, obviously. So, because the film Invitation uses Dracula as if Dracula is a twist. Um, when you know it's goddamn Dracula the whole time. Like, well, this is obviously right. going to be Dracula. Um, because the, the book Dracula uses Dracula as a twist. Um, so, to quote myself... Um, that the film treats its source material as a reveal is indicative of the central issues, and is part of why this adaptation is so dull. In the novel Dracula, Dracula being a Dracula is a wild twist because, well, Dracula is the first Dracula. That's why Dracula is called Dracula. Right. So, it, like, that's why Dracula has such a cultural and massive impact beyond itself, like it's made a mythos. Um, yeah. The echoing the plot points of it in the same, like, slow reveal way, you're like, this dude is, like, there's the main guy in it who is so sinister, he has these breathy pauses that after everyone he must go, because I'm Dracula. It's like, it's because I'm Dracula. It's, he's like an inchworm every time. It's just not very, it's just not very good. Yeah. I don't want to it too much. So let's talk about, ugh, and you hear the rest of my voice. Um, we yes. both watched They Slash Them. Uh, inadvisable which for is, both of us. Which is, as and for everyone. before, is not only horribly offensive, but it's also what, Vaughn? Horribly. Extremely boring. It's so boring. Oh my it's god. So boring. I, I I mean not that this really I ever would have expected this to be a good film, but there's at least there's at least enough in the concept that you think maybe there's something there. Like something that's would at least be <sighs> yeah. enjoyable. Like maybe it'll be 
offensive and frustrating, but maybe I'll still okay. get a like, gory slasher. A queer reclaiming of the slasher <clears throat> genre is interesting. And this film could be great because it is so almost this idea. So, the, the, so they slash them is it's a Friday the 13th, um, but it's a, 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 in quotes, gay conversion camp. So horrendous right. place. It doesn't really do enough. It, it, it's a little bit cutesy. Every scene has been like, this looks fine. Apart from it's not. I'm like, dude, I know it's not fine. It's a conversion camp. Like, come on. I think uh, it's, it's frustrating to me. Because I feel like it doesn't really even know what it's presenting. No, it, 100% like it, it's, it has it no reality to it at all. It doesn't right. sell its setting. And it needs to. Like, it, it's, it does this weird thing where it presents this conversion camp as, like, really nice on the face, but it's actually sinister. I'm and like, I'm like, yeah, I don't I know. <laughs> right, like, it's, it acts like that's a twist. And I'm like, but it's a conversion camp. Are you trying uh, yeah. to say that any of those are actually, like... It, 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 in a weird way, it makes it seem like hmm. if this were a normal conversion camp, then they would just be nice to all these kids. Yeah, you're right. Like, there is there is no. a hint of we could be nice, but choosing not to right. because they they play with that kind of like rhetoric of like, that, that speech. And Kevin Bacon is good in this because he's a good actor. He should not be in it. Yeah. It's a terrible movie. And he's there because he was in Friday the Thirteenth. It's a right. joke. Ah, he gives this speech about you're like you know what I'm not a homophobe. Blah blah. You be yourself. And it's just like. By entering the speech, you are actually evoking that this could be fine and this is a bad version. Right. So, that. so the core issue, right? So the appeal of a slasher movie, this is a traditional slasher in setup. The idea yes. being, the idea of a teen slasher, teen summer camp slasher is teens have sex and they die. So you hear about this film and you go, oh, so it's going to be just a bunch of the LGBTQIA plus community just being killed. Now nah, I'm good. And the movie goes, yeah. no, we're not going to be that. And I'm like, oh, fantastic. So it takes this idea of a puritanical genre and it makes it a positive expression. But it has nothing to put in place of that because it does not connect the queer characters with the slasher element at all. They're just over there. Yeah. What it does instead is become a slasher of the camp counsellors. And they're just thinking, fantastic. Love that stuff. And I wrote some review and I want to I reiterate this. This is almost a core misunderstanding of horror. Part of the misunderstanding is because it's not a horror film for most of it. It's just a really crappy light drama with no characters. It's, now, yeah. The ending of this film, which I am going to spoil, is so atrocious because it does this thing of being like this person who there is no threat set up, and in slashers, the killer is the main character. The Friday 13th movies became the Jason movies. Freddy yeah. vs. Jason comes out. Hell, Hellraiser is not a slasher, but people call Pinhead Hellraiser because they right. attribute these villains to the franchise. They are iconic. There yes. is a sense of allegiance with the character and we want to watch the kills. This doesn't do that. Now, when we get to the end and we've been killing camp counsellors, the killer is told basically that no, you can't do that because the film thinks because it doesn't understand the genre because the person has no background genre. The film thinks if it says kill count counselors, the logic would be you should go do that. That's not how horror works. No, horror is not saying do these things. Horror right. is a hyperbolized genre language of hyper reality of catharsis. So yes. when we've got someone slashing up people in this reclamatory way, and you do have revenge movies like this, you do have slash like this that do that. It's not saying go out and kill them. It's using that as a metaphor for literalizing violence. So using right. violence on the camp counselors is a way of showing that what the camp counselors do is a kind of violence that literalizes right. it. You, and what it's saying don't... is, sorry. And what it's saying no, is actually take action. It's not saying kill them. It's saying send them. And at the end, the film goes, no, don't take action. And that is, abhorrent to me apologies no I, i'm just like the the idea of having to literalize 
telling your audience like murder is bad like that's just you don't need to spell but, that yeah, out we for your audience you're watching a horror movie and people are dying at no point do you need to moralize yeah. it and say the killing is bad i know that yeah, yeah that's no, not why I, i'm watching the movie you know i don't 100%. need you to spell it out and I, and then yeah there is that that additional thing where it adds that in at the end and you just go you have no idea what point you're making and yeah it's it's just it ends up being ultimately damaging well yeah because it sets up this idea right actually the the invitation is quite similar to this of like the invitation at the end sets up the film that it should have been and i'm like i'd watch this movie so then the invitation right. it's just like it's this reclamation this woman maybe gets some dracula powers and really brings it back to these like posh twats and you're like actually that's the movie i'd watch i know dracula i'm bored of this this movie at the end they're like how about we just go around and just kill the count I'm like, yeah, how about we do that? That sounds rad. They're like, no. The high ground. Yeah, and oh, for God's to sake. To even say that they go around killing the camp counselors is like almost giving the film too much credit because that <laughs> barely like, happens. Yeah. It's, There's yeah. maybe two or three deaths in the whole movie and they barely happen and they are not interesting to watch. The film... Like, I mean, another part of the reason that you watch them is because the cool the kills are cool or interesting and this movie is not that like you you keep waiting for the movie to turn into a slasher and it never does the kills are so quick and tertiary and they don't matter and then it ends with this weird moralizing and you just go like what was the purpose of watching this in any way it does remind me of one of my least favorites and this generally and i'm this sounds like a joke on you but i do want to bring it up one of my least favorite slasher films of all time um, the first, I know what you're gonna say. Yeah, um, the first credit from a um, yeah Mr. Harvey Weinstein, The Burning, which I know for everyone else, I despise The Burning. And you want to hear my full opinion on it? There's a podcast I recorded on it. I'm actually very proud of, and I got quite a lot of good feedback on. It's an early Nasty Pals episode, and now defunct podcast. Sadly, I think it's like the first or second. It might even be the first. Maybe it was, it was, no, the first was um, Zombie Flesh Eaters. And I think it's the second episode of The Burning because I hated it and I need to watch it again. I despise The Burning. I get people like it because there's good gore effects, but The Burning is everything that I can hate about slashes because it is so predatory and leering and gross. This is this camera that's just like stuck to these like teens. It goes out of its way to like sexualize them and then punish yeah. their sexuality. It's so disgusting. And I cannot get away from the fact that it's got this Harvey Weinstein thing at the beginning because this film is so clearly all those impulses literalized and it shows that this person was like that from the beginning. It's such a horrible predatory disgusting movie um and i don't want to be reminded of that again and these again it's just like i don't know just slashes can be great and camp right. slashes can be great and there's just like avoid the ick avoid the ick as the love island people say avoid the ick i also just to return to they slash them the the dance and song sequence oh terrible is maybe the most bizarre and out of place thing i've seen in any movie maybe ever i i don't know what that was the it idea help, that i didn't actually know the song so i was just like what is going on here <laughs> i i mean i must have heard that song at some point but just the idea of it to me of like all of these kids know this song by heart and would all just break out into like this choreographed oh, song that and awkward di- like cut into the guy that just like knee slides oh, along so bizarre and it's terrible, just like terrible, in, in terrible, the middle terrible. of a movie that you're expecting to be a slasher and you're just like what am i watching yeah, so that's our grab bag. Um, let's get to our main event then. Um, yes. Nathan Fielder's The Rehearsal. Let's start as we do normally with our familiarity with Nathan Fielder. Mine is basically none. Um, the Rehearsal's my Which first is an Nathan interesting. 
a very interesting perspective to be entering the rehearsal with, yes. I think. And I think um, that's why I like certain aspects more than you do. Um, that we both are very, very positive in this, but there's certain things that I think were more novel to me, so therefore I latched on yeah. them more, which are, from what I've heard are very much kind of like smart repetitions, but repetitions of... I've watched a bit of Nathan for you, a very, very bit of, just like the, the opening episode to get a bit of a grounding, and then I got a bit busy. Um, you're a big Nathan for you fan. I am. I Nathan for you is phenomenal. It's. I mean, I, it's some of the best television out there. I think that Nathan Fielder is just so smart in like the way that he constructs these things and executes them and he knows how to sort of play into just normal human social interaction in a way that he can pull out these like perfect little moments that feel so bizarre and like mm -hmm. almost alien in a way but it's just he's so consistently hilarious in these things that he does and he's so good at escalating these situations to a point that you almost never see coming like it just feels so ludicrous every time yeah um, um so my very short impression of never for you is it seems very very good i think based and this is very reductive of me i think based on one episode there's a little bit of dated crudeness that i was not a big fan of um the occasional joke that i was like mm, and it is a little bit mean-spirited in a way the joke is very much at other people sometimes that i did not find yes. to be the case in the rehearsal and judging my conversation with others it seems the rehearsal is very much in conversation with that, it very much is like him reflecting yes. on his own art. So I do like that about it. So that's on Nathan Fielder backing. Getting to the rehearsal I, I is will, a difficult bit. Sorry. I wanted to, I just wanted to say, I mentioned briefly, I, I've been, I, I am reviewing the rehearsal for the website. I'm yes. working on that review. Um, getting close to done with it. It's just such a difficult thing to unpack, which of course we're going to talk about now. But yeah. I, I started my, my review with like talking about how the rehearsal starts off and you expect it. The expectation is sort of that it's going to be along the lines of Nathan for you. And there's this setup where it's kind of the same thing where it's like he finds a random person and sort of under the false pretense of helping them sets up this elaborate ruse and scheme. And makes a comedy about them. Yeah. And makes a comedy about it. But then very quickly realize that there's another angle to it. And the other angle I think comes very heavily from the finale of Nathan for you, which is finding Francis, which is almost basically its own film. Yes. Um, and you haven't watched that yet, correct? No, I need to. Um, I, cause I need, I, I feel <clears throat> the need to watch Nathan for you first before I watch, because it is a totally finale. fair. Um, yeah. And that probably means I'll never get, I'll never get around to it, but I, 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 I will do it at some point. It'll take a while. Yeah. Um, um, but finding Francis is like, I think the perfect, like stepping stone in between point, because finding Francis fantastic. sets that sets up that sort of reflective, version of nathan where he's looking at what he's doing and also just looking at himself and like having to reconcile with like his own sort of place in the world and like the, yes. the his anxieties and loneliness and things like that and i think that weaves perfectly into the rehearsal i want to get to the rehearsal and i want to be a bit contrived about it um because i think it is it is a purposely contrived and like self-reflexive work um i think i want to start with talking about hbo very very briefly because HBO is fascinating at the moment because HBO is at the moment destroying itself due to yes. corporate merger things. Just imploding. And, which is hilarious to me because HBO also has never been in a better position for a long time. Well, has been in a better position, uh, but not for a long time. 100%. It has the two most talked about television shows. One, obvious, there's a new Game of Thrones. Not Game of Thrones. Yeah. It's, called, it's called Not Game of Thrones. I believe that's the name of the show. Um, yes, that's exactly it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got that and that actually has caught off a bit and it's also got the rehearsal which amazingly caught off hugely. And yeah. that's interesting to me because 
let's pause for a second. There are a lot of films that we can link to the rehearsal. And I've, I've thought of a few. I mean, one is Synecdoche, New York, which you've not seen, so we'll, we'll ignore that for now. Um, very, very similar. Um, one is definitely Symbiopsychotaxoplasm, take one. I That's funny that you say that, because I before you said it, I thought about that because I've been trying to think about other things that I can connect it to, and I've mentioned a lot of different things in my review, yeah. and that is one that I haven't gotten to, but is a perfect example, I think, and I, I love Symbiopsychotaxi. Can you give us a quick summation of what that film is? Because my point I'm making is, which I will reveal now, people have not watched... I mean, our listeners will have done because we we are a film review podcast. But people with capital P have yeah. not seen Symbiopsychotaxoplasm Take One, and you tell it to them, they won't go see it. But people have flocked to Nathan View, and that's that's the interesting crux here. We're going to mention here a lot of high fluting films, and none of them have hit in the same way that you. Sorry, the um, the rehearsal has. But first of yeah. all, what is Symbiopsychotaxoplasm Take One? Symbiopsychotaxoplasm Take One is what a great title. A, first of all. A, a, one of my favorite titles um, is William Greaves. Is that his name? Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, American filmmaker, William Greaves. It's, it's, a, it's a documentary where the director is filming a movie, but at the same time he is filming himself filming the movie, and then he is filming the people that are filming him film the movie. I so there are a, basically... A current touchstone to that, um, it's a very different film, but if you've seen one cut of The Dead, there are some similar ideas there yeah. about layers of abstraction. And for me, both those films, though have different thesis points, are very much about how filmmaking is a collaborative, chaotic thing that is not auteured, yes. but can be disrupted. <laughs> I would say, I mean, obviously the major difference between those two things is that one cut is very precisely orchestrated and symbiopsychotaxoplasm kind of. is... Yeah, kind of, but like in the way that that film is fictionalized and this film, uh, Simeopsychotaxiplasm, is purely documentary, yes. at least, in that like he's just filming hmm. the, his crew and like how they are sort of slowly realizing what he's doing yes. as it's playing out and like there's these fascinating... And there's like an he ethical just does... quandary there as well of like these people do yes, not know definitely. what they're actually in, which links to the rehearsal very, very nicely. Of yeah. like you're making art that's about this thing, but is it at the expense of this thing? And we'll talk about that at rehearsal because there is a there is a key ethical quandary at the, at the heart of it. So also uh, symbiopsychotaxiplasm, brilliant uh, Miles Davis score, I will say. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, a fascinating film. People haven't yes. watched it so much. Um, my other two touchstones are, are not films. One of which okay. I'm going to say is wrestling. Um, okay. <laughs> professional wrestling. This idea of it's this idea of everyone knows that wrestling is fake. Right. The suspension of disbelief. The suspension of disbelief. Yeah. And it's it's this concept of kayfabe, which I don't know if you're familiar with or not. That like all wrestlers play have to like play into like the company line and pretend it's real, but everyone knows it's not real. And yeah. I think the rehearsal is so much in conversation with our ability to suspend belief and to create yeah. reality through falsity that it's so obvious things are false. But what the rehearsal does is it does that while showing you all of the strings of like, it yeah. does not... It, yes, it recreates sets, but in a way that makes it very, very clear it's fakery. So it it, abs it creates the Brexit element and pushes that. And then things... My last thing, and this is the... I'm getting so blended here. Are you familiar with the philosopher Siren Kierkegaard? It might be Kierkegaard. I'm not very good at pronunciation. No. Um, interesting dude. Here's a quote from him. And you'll see why I've quoted this, because this okay. quote is the rehearsal. All right? It's one of my favorite quotes in philosophy, and you'll see why. 
The self is a relation which relates itself to its own self, or it is that in the relation that the relation relates itself to its own self. The self is not the relation, but the relation itself itself to its own self. Got it's it. supposed it's supposed to be right. confusing. Like the idea of like yes. the self relates the self and projection and like defining the self and how it relates to the self, what the self actually is, is very, very tricky. And that is so much right. of of the rehearsal. The way we've talked about this so much, how alienating and artsy does this show sound? Very, right? Yeah, and I but... before we before we get <laughs> fully into it, I wanna I'll add my like okay, yeah, yeah, other yeah. like high art thing that connects to the rehearsal Certified that I've copy. been thinking about a lot. Yes, I, I mean Kira Starmi as a whole. I would say I think is is very much in conversation with it. But I can think you, can I afterwards? I'm gonna if you mention Coker, I have a Coker theory. But you go first. Yes, I, I was definitely specifically Coker. Like the Coker trilogy is so similar in the way that mm-hmm. it starts with fiction yes. and then it pulls back into a narrative about that fiction and then yes. pulls back into a narrative about the narrative about the fiction. The, the arc really, of the like, Coker trilogy right. is the same as the rehearsal. I'm so glad Except you agree. Like, yeah. The opening episode is Where is the Friend's House? I've been like, this is a brilliant piece of very specifically about this. And it's yeah. all about that. And it clearly has social ideas, but it works independently. And then the next chunk, which I'm going to call episodes two through four, is um, Life, Life and, and Nothing, nothing More. more. Yeah. Is that idea of we take the thing. And we go, actually, that's a fake thing. And let's realize the abstractions and the consequences of this fake thing. But this is also still a fake thing. And then episodes five and six are through the olive trees trees. of let's take one moment and let's make that our focus. I have no idea if Nathan has seen the Coca trilogy, but it is stunning to me. Like how similar this show is in construction to that. And it's like, that's one of my favorite frameworks in art. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it works so well here. And like to your point, I was talking to my wife about this recently about like the sort of the accessibility of TV, I guess. Like, yes, in that she's been watching House of the Dragon, the new Game of Thrones show. I, I have not. I believe it's I, actually called not Game of Thrones, but yes. Yeah, correct. Um, I have not because I basically just completely abandoned Game of Thrones after the final season and have no interest in returning to that world. Um, but like she's been showing me sort of the the wider response to it and just like how yeah. and like how attached they like two episodes in and people just going insane over these characters and these things and I'm like I feel like that's partially the reason that I am just not interested in TV because yeah it's it's like people just get so over the top about this stuff and. I'm just not interested in that like sort of response to things because it's like this thing that is sort of like Game of Thrones is like this elevated TV, but it's still TV. So it's so accessible, but people treat it like it's not that like it's hard to really describe, but you are right. I think this is, this is our way indefinitely. And I will say, I do agree with you. I will say that on a personal note, I try to avoid using the word insane because of its like links. Um, with, totally fair. Um, yeah. Um, mental health over time. But I, there is, there is a, there is a wildness to the response. Yes. Fanaticism that is, is, is unsettling, especially as we thought that had died down and people just like waiting for right. Game of Thrones to, to be Game of Thrones again. Um, but the accessibility is the brilliant thing for me here because I think part of it's down to runtime, right? Of yes, if I tell you go watch Psycho Symbio Psycho Attacks Fun Take One, people are like no one, it's hard to find two, it's yeah. artsy 
Three, it's the commitment of watching a film, which may actually be the same length as TV, but things differently. The moment you present something as weekly and serialized, right. people get really into it. And it goes back to water cooler, kind of like culture, which we don't yeah. really have anymore, but we have it very much online, of the sense of if there is a pause between people talk about it, um, you make a film like the rehearsal, there are films like it, they do exist. Yeah. They don't get the sustained conversation, they get the one-off conversation. But as the conversation builds, week on week, it becomes appointment viewing. And the other thing is, the show takes advantage of the thing you're saying. The show is in conversation with sensationalism. It yeah. presents reality TV. It's about reality TV. It ostensibly is reality TV. And it is a funny comedy. It is an accessible... It's an alt comedy, but it's not like wild anti-comedy. Right. Like, this is an accessible show on the surface that slowly strips away itself with something else. But it never loses sight of commercial viability in a way that doesn't harm it at all it's always an accessible funny quirky show even when right. it's getting into layers of self-representing self-representing self yeah I, I mean i think there's certainly a lot to be said for like not just the accessibility of tv but like you're saying like the presentation of it like hmm. even even just symbiopsychotaxiplasm being hard to find and watch yeah easily you describe that movie to someone and like it's this weird obfuscated like you know it's got this kind of almost grating jazzy score and yeah. it does this thing where there's like a, a triple split screen where you're watching three cameras at the same time and it's like Napoleon. you and i though it's brilliant to people like us like it's hard yes. to watch that movie because you never quite like it's never telling you what is exactly happening because it's unfolding as you're watching it and like the rehearsal you are getting it as you're going, like, also because, like, Nathan is basically telling you what's happening as it's happening. Yeah, that's a very good And point. it's the same thing with, like, the Coker trilogy. Like, those three movies have the same basic, when you really strip it down, like, the same yeah. basic premise, but it is, you know, high art, in quotes. It's, and it's, it's, it's Iranian, there's a language barrier. Right, it's for, Iranian. For the, for the primary audience. And there's no, like, comedy to the same degree that you're watching you know nathan yeah. fielder present comedy so it's like they're the same ideas but it yeah. totally makes sense why people would gravitate towards something like the rehearsal versus stuff like that but also here's the pitch you can give the pitch you can give is like oh there's a great new comedy it's on hbo from this like alternative comedy guy who's like i'm up you'll you really enjoy it just check it out and yeah people are like oh i probably have access to that before you can watch it yeah because exactly. you can just go it's on hbo and, it, and I, I will thank hbo for doing this because them greenlighting it and making it that has right. given it the success. It shows that there is some worth to, to the, the things. I actually, um, and actually, the last film, Claire's Camera, actually, the Hong Kong Su film, is quite similar. Um, there is, yeah. I'm say that the third episode of the rehearsal, I think it's the third one. The third one is the um, the Gold Digger one, right? Yes. Yeah, That's which correct. is one of my favourite just like jokes that it doesn't lapse in it too much of someone's being accused of a gold digger and then we go through someone and someone actually literally digging up gold. Right. Very, very funny. Love that so much. Um, and this guy just presents himself as the nicest guy like drives out to some person's house like late in the evening and there's like do manual labor for me that lasts all night and just does it and you know watching this the only reason any of that happens is because there is a camera there and he knows right. it so when, when an old man says can you help me out all night you probably go oh, i would love to but i have to go back when you're being filmed for tv you're like yes yeah i will do that i'm a nice person so claire's camera's idea of the camera changes things cameras do change things and reality tv changes the things in front of it very very nicely and this show is very very aware of that yes 
And I definitely want to come back to that episode yeah. because I think there's a really important thread that gets started in that episode. But I will just say, like, I think what's also so great about this show is, like, that first episode pulls you in so it's very well. Good. Like, it's, a, it's a really good comedy episode. I think it's, it's, I think it's worthwhile, actually, to, to go chronologically for the episodes. Yeah. Because I think it's easy to get caught up into what episode is best rhetoric, and we think differently on that. But, again, because we're not really TV people, I think the thing to remember is this is a series that works as a series. Of, like, yes. it, oh, it doesn't matter which episode is better, because it has this wonderful arc. And I actually really like that it builds up, builds up, builds up, pauses, breaks down. Yes, and that I totally can be frustrating agree. to some, and I get that. But the way that it just goes, 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 and then it's just like, wait, Aftermath. And again, Hong Sang-soo is the person about Aftermath. I love that in films. And the fact that it goes like, let's get as hard as we can get. And then it goes, actually, what did that right. mean? Bam, let's go. The five and six, to me, were just absolutely stunning. So yeah, we start at the beginning um, with Quiz Show Guy. I thought at the end it was going to reveal the whole thing was a rehearsal for the actual episode. I was kind of bummed out they didn't actually That's do pretty, that. That's pretty, that is a great concept. Well, because Nathan, be... Nathan does a line twice right. at the end, and I thought, yeah. oh, are you revealing that? But then that wouldn't facilitate the wider show. But for a second, yeah. I was like, oh, that would have been really, really cool. Um, yeah. I, I think this episode is so great because, like, it starts out, this episode being, like, the, the show starting out, like, with such specific structure. Like, it starts yeah. out in the way that Nathan For You does, where it says, here is the concept of the show. Yeah. I found a guy with a problem. I'm going to help him solve his problem in a ridiculous way. But I'm doing it even more ridiculously because I'm rehearsing my conversations with my subject. I, like, I there's an extra layer now. This works better than some of the Nathan for You stuff does for me. I think this is very much by design of this is legitimately helping somebody. Like, legitimately. Yes. Like, no, the I purpose agree with you. here is to be constructive. And why this episode works so well and is different than the rest of them is it goes about its way to frame this person as very, very positive. You like Core. He is a nice yes. guy and you want him to go to his problem because his, his problem also reflects a societal problem. Now, I'm going to be very tentative how I talk about this and I'm going to avoid certain conversations. I am not in the interest of diagnosing anybody. I have no, like, no wants to do that at all. However, right. I think the show does a good reflection in episode one of a type of neurodivergent thinking, of a type of it, of that kind of like the fear of interfacing with the world and the want yeah. to being prepared and the inability to know how to deal with some things there is a cognitive diversity that's literalized for the process that's very very interesting of like ways of thinking and progressing and i don't know i am a person that that likes to think in that way of i'm right. a person who who does struggle with social interaction and overthinks and does rehearse in the brain and i found that actually quite moving and meaningful and also absolutely quite, quite existentially quite scary at points like quite terrifying of being like to the point, there's, there's one bit that I thought was exploitative, which is when they make him act out the worst case scenario. That I thought was a bit much. Because yeah. he generally feels that and that was horrible. A thing I really like, I'm talking too much, I apologise. A thing I really, no, really like is, a, and it's such an intelligent thing that it does, is it introduces someone by description and then lets them present themselves. Which is phenomenal. Yeah. So you hear about this woman and she sounds like a pain. And you see her through Kaur's eyes and she's like a pain. And you see her later. She's great. She's awesome. And you realise that the our friends that live in our heads, we have a different version of them. And yeah. we are able to see Kaur really likes this person and that's why he presents them negatively because he's insecure about his relationship with right. them. And the, the way that the, the show gets you to realise that about how we project others and the way we see others is actually projecting ourselves but never talks about it. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. I, so clever. I think that's 
just at its core, I think that's the the huge strength of this show is that on its face, it is comedy and it is escalation and it's it so is silly. funny and it is silly. But there's this constantly like there's there's a constant through line that's like so genuine that yes. is not really present in the same way in Nathan for you. Like I, until you get to finding Francis, but like there is that constant like, yeah, this is really there's an honesty to all of it. There's some something so genuine about it. And yeah. like, even though you do say like it is in a way like kind of that neurodivergent thinking, but it's also I think there's a universality to it. Yeah. In that. Like, you watch this and you're like, yeah, like, I don't, maybe I'm totally wrong and there are people who don't think in this way in any way, but it's like, I think that to a degree at least, everyone, like, has those feelings of not being quite sure, like, how someone else is going to react in a conversation and, like, not being sure how that, that thing is going to go and, like, there's, there's, has to be at least to some degree, like, that nervousness in everyone where... You don't know how this is going to go and you wish you could, you wish you could know how it was going to go before you get there. And I like just conceptually the idea of like, we're actually going to do that and we're going to actually practice like this thing that you is normally just you lying like wide awake in bed at night. Like, oh man, how is this going to go? Like, what if we actually did that and actually practiced how this conversation that you're dreading is going to play out? See. Can I really pithily, this is a pithy phrase I've worked on, this is what I think the thesis of the show is. We're going to skip to the end here. For me, the thesis of the show is this kind of like, this lovely aphorism. Performance, like, sorry, reality is performance. But through performance, you cannot get reality. To me, that maxim is the show. I think that's perfect. It reveals that all reality is performative. But it is it is naturally performative, and why the I love the end of this TV show so much, so brilliant finale. It's the most perfect, perfect ending point because it feels abrupt and it feels sudden. So you get Nathan going into this existential spiral about being like, "No, I'm dad, not mom." You're like, "Oh no, he's internalized too much." And there's one line from the kid that makes you realize that's a planned bit. He's like, "Good scene," and you're like, "Oh," and at the end you're left with being like. That wasn't real because through this stuff, you cannot make real things. You cannot, through this contrived nonsense, make reality. Yes, reality has an element of unreality and artificiality, but that doesn't mean that it's it's imitatable. Um, There's so much like grand philosophy that links to that. John Searle, Extended Minds, etc., etc., Chinese Room. You could talk about that for hours. But that crux is so great of it's that Judith Butler idea of identity as performance. And then it bends back to being like, yes, that is true. But it doesn't work around. Just, just perfect to me. Just perfect. Yeah, and I think, I think that aspect of it really links back a lot to sort of the wider sentiment of Kiarostami's work, where mm. you get into like this idea of how we are performative in our realities, and like sort of the line between like art and reality, and and fiction and reality, and like when it gets to a certain point, those lines don't matter. Because if if art or performance or, or anything like that is revealing a truth to you, then that's, you know, that's the ultimate thing that you're going to take with you. And that's what matters. Like, I think that's what that finale really emphasizes to me is yeah. like, yes, it is performance, but it oh, the is emotion still is real. The emotion is very, very right. real. The emotion is very real. But he can't get 
the I think one of the cleverest things that the show does, I think it's in the last episode as well, of it, it, it shows that this woman who has a child intuitively understands her child. Yes. And that Nathan can never fake that. And there are right. some things about our real things that you just have to live and experience and do. You cannot construct reality in your backyard and act out into it. You just can't. And and, and that's so fascinating to me. Um, my here's my high concept pitch. Um, you know how you know Bo Burnham, the person that made a masterpiece film and otherwise makes yes. crap. Um, Bo Burnham thinks that he created the the defining like COVID thing. I think right. the rehearsal is more that thing than what he made. I think the rehearsal by accident, because it alludes to COVID by you see masks and stuff, but the rehearsal so much more gets that idea of like the anxiety of being locked down here, internally locked down and yeah. going back in society and not knowing how to interact and interfacing and getting lost in some of There's so much in here I could list for so long about like COVID anxieties that reflected. The idea of like lost time through COVID is literalized through here of like, have we missed Definitely. something time going on? This feels so much like it legitimately speaks to the moment and it does all of it by not saying those things because it comes so purely from intent as opposed to I being like, absolutely look, right. I'm locked down, I'm inside. It's like COVID. It's like, no, this is reflects like a mental experience and then abstracts that out. And again, it is about loneliness and isolation. And yeah. that, hits so differently and interfaces so beautifully yeah no that's that's a really it's a really good way to put it and i didn't not something that i really considered but like i think is totally apt i think that it really does deconstruct loneliness in an interesting way without really literalizing it like yeah. it is very much about nathan trying to figure himself out and deal with sort of the world around him and not really understanding the world around him but like I said, like it is on its face, it's comedy and it's silly exactly. and it's escalation. It's always very, very funny. But by the, when when that final episode hits and then it cuts to black and you just kind of left there mm. thinking about it and like the way that all of that stuff kind of then just is sort of like infused in you through just watching all of it and then yeah. like that final episode just sort of wraps it all together in such a smart yeah. way. I think. I think ethically, I think I think it's an imperfect show, and I think that's actually part of why I like it as a piece of art, even if I would critique elements of it, um, because I think it's it, it is aware of its imperfections and it yeah. is aware of its like ethical quandaries. That doesn't make those okay. I mean, there, there is a like. Totally. However, however, the reason I will keep defending it, um, and I will, and I have in conversations, the way I understand people actually taking against elements of it because it can be exploitative. Um, this show actually makes you realize that other shows are doing these things all the time and you yeah. don't think about it the way Absolutely. it treats child actors is a problem but it draws your attention to that happens all the time in all kinds of things react like so much criticism of reality tv is rote and boring and being like reality tv it's not really real is it this again by not literalizing it is a very perceptive thing of it shows the things it makes you experience discomfort and then goes yeah why don't i feel like this when i'm watching love island or one if I like when I'm watching like Selling Sunset because maybe I do afterwards but I don't right. in the moment. This idea of like crafted reality, it's very good at exposing through awkward comedy the actual layers of awkwardness, artificiality, and problematized elements in reality yeah. TV. And that's why like it's so important that also it's a huge aspect of the show that Nathan is realizing that like that yes. he is slowly throughout the show like coming to terms with the way that he has to work so hard to engineer his desired outcome to the point where it's like oh is this 
like I'm trying to make something real, but I'm engineering it to a point where it's not. And I also have to use all of these people. And they're also real people who are affected in their own lives outside of this show. And I think that's just, that's such an important part of it. Yeah, 100%. And it's, that, that is so interesting to me. So unbelievably interesting all the way through. So the, the ethical stuff is interesting. Um, I, an episode breakdown is somewhat is, is somewhat worthwhile because there are, there are bits I want to talk about. So the second episode, fascinating because you have the, is it the Hyundai Scion guy? <laughs> That's just a yeah. like numerology guy who was just like this ultimate character that you found, this like TV oh, yeah. could do this. And then we introduce Angela who becomes... The show. The show's, like, second protagonist, I would say. Which, again, the formal fluidity of the show, they'd be like, I'm gonna follow this now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just... Like, I wanted to say, like, I think that's what's also so interesting, is, like, that first episode is so formally structured, and then yeah. it gives up on that immediately. Yeah. It it turns, it goes into the second rehearsal, like, you expect the show to be, like Nathan, for you again, like, every episode will be a rehearsal. Yeah, and then and immediately it's like It's a great idea. And it could work. But it's like, that's not what this is and it's like it becomes deconstructive so immediately and you immediately jump into like here is a rehearsal that is so like so large in scale that it couldn't possibly be one episode of television yeah and then there's just basically like no formal structure through the rest of the show at all yeah yeah yeah, it's just kind of like whatever's happening is happening and he, then we go into like the gold digger episode and there is yeah. sort of another rehearsal but it's kind of like again like it's sort of tertiary in a way oh, and, like and you, that's the rehearsals enough episode well, isn't it that idea of like someone yeah goes to the rehearsal process and then doesn't need to, like just doesn't turn up again right. like, actually you know i i and again that shows another thing of being like the you know the this is there is a therapeutic f like therapy and talking through things like there is yeah. a, a constructive element here there's a destructive and constructive that was great episode four is 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 the banger like the conventional banger Yes, and, and totally understand, and I love episode four. I, reflectively, I don't know if it's my favorite, but I also don't know hey. if I would even say I have like yes, a I, favorite at this point. Yeah. I, I think just the whole show works so well as a full yeah, series that breaking it down by episode doesn't matter. But it makes sense that this is like the episode that people talk about because it is like just this wild escalation that just mm. never stops throughout the episode. And then when you think it stops... It turns on a dime and does this completely it's different just, thing that you were awesome. not expecting. It's just awesome. It's, and it's, it's it's brilliant. It's just a realization that something. I mean, I've, <clears throat> I've linked. I, I, it makes me think of video games and like things like Persona and Dead Rising. Of like the that something is happening in the background. It's like oh no no that is still happening by the way. Right. And because you did this, you made a choice, and now the thing happens. And it also reminds me of D and D, and we played D and D together. Of like. My yeah. my philosophy as DM, as copied from others, is always like fail forward of this idea of like this is opportunity, and yes. the show does that perfectly of being like oh, okay, what is this now? It's just like right. It's it it's such this like it's role playing improv. That that's when improv is great. Um, I actually want to make one critique, and I'm going to be so frustrating because in this critique, I'm going to actually argue against myself and say why else okay. it wasn't a problem. Um, to be a bit oversharey, there was an element in episode four that I found very uncomfortable and did not like it okay. when I was watching it. Um, I, I don't want to give away too much about my family and personal life, but as someone that grew up with a a family member who um, had a relationship with drugs quite similar to the, the thing shown here of like, and seeing that leads to family breakdowns and things, seeing that used so casually for a while was quite upsetting to watch. Um, and there was a bit of me being like, why are you doing this? 
But right. again, so arguing against myself, the rehearsal does this thing very explicitly the whole way through, making you go, think about why I'm showing you this. And the moment when I said, oh, you're not showing me this, that kid is showing me this. That yeah. kid decided that storyline, and that is a hyperbolized, sensationalized child's view. And as I reflect on that, that's not a toxic narrative that Nathan Field is putting out. That's a toxic narrative that our youth are spreading right. because they are so used to it being pushed that way of being like, one deadbeat dad leads to drugs. That is reductive and horrible. And it's being presented because that seemed to be what a cool story. And that went from being deeply uncomfortable to me to be being like, that's actually very clever and very interesting. Yeah. And effortlessly shows a truth about something social while not even speaking about it. Yeah. I, man, it's just... It the whole episode is so consistently fascinating because like you have this whole first segment where it's Nathan. There's so many layers to just this episode. <laughs> yes. It's like hard to even just again, like just this episode to deconstruct this, like this, this element of Nathan, which like, I think there's like such a fascinating, like empathy to this episode where, yeah, I mean, it's like empathy, but that also, he realizes is he's not being empathetic in like the right way. Yeah. Overstepping empathy. Right. Like it starts out with like, he's like, okay, I'm teaching this class, but I don't know how to be a good teacher. So what if I was a student in my own class, which I think is just great in concept. It's a great joke. It's a very good joke. And it, and it works so well because he's like, Oh, as a student in my class, I feel like I'm not engaging enough. So then he alters his own class. And like, as he's going through it, he's learning. And it's like, it's great because it's like, this is a way that people should be thinking more of like how how are other people like experiencing yeah like what i'm doing i guess like it's hard to like phrase this stuff but like that idea of like putting yourself in someone else's shoes right and like trying to understand their reaction to what you're doing and like yeah there is an empathy to that and but oh, then sorry. like when it when it gets to the point of like he's living in this guy's house Oh, yeah. and... I think one of our emailers touches on this, but there is a moment of just like yeah. pure terror of you're just like right. this, 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 this visual of just him standing in someone else's house, which he's kind of tricked his way into. Um, yeah. Like in their clothes as them, that you're just like, this is too much. Yeah. and But then it's it works so well because then like the next scene is he's like, okay, but now the person that's playing fake Nathan has to now live in my house yeah. yeah so then he has to give his keys as this other person to fake nathan and he realizes how weird that is yeah and he has like this moment of like okay probably good to step into someone else's shoes but i'm not going to get anything from going this far so this is totally unnecessary which is you know ultimately the correct way to like end that yeah. of like i have taken this way too far and it is ultimately not helpful the next arc for us to talk about and to talk very sensitively about is how this is also a a reckoning um, a reckoning with faith and, and faith as culture. Yes. Um, this show's relationship with Judaism and how to present religion and how to treat religion and how to raise people if you are religious is, is yeah. really fascinating. And again, because it asks questions. One of the funniest things in this show is Angela in general. And yeah. the bit when she just talks about how Apocalypto is her favourite film and then just talks about Mel Gibson for a while and you're just like... There's so many just, moments like that. Nathan's just throughout, like discomfort. It's just wonderful. Yeah. There's so many moments like that. And I think 
that's like the the reality of it where like you are just seeing normal people and they have these moments where like you're like oh right this is a person and even though they are presenting themselves a certain way there is also a mm. you know philosophy behind them and that there is certainly potential for things that are not good about these people like even though they mm. present themselves a certain way there is probably something going on there that we are not privy to but that comes out into these certain points that you're like oh right which, this is what this person really is which dare i say legitimizes reality tv a bit there is one bit in it that i thought and this is why episode five has the highest moment for me and of course you know me of course it's my favorite my favorite moment it does this amazing thing with it is very clear it is very very clear that angela is an anti-semite like she just is yeah and like there's this really great scene where they get someone who is a a judaism scholar and like like maybe not a scholar but they, they are a tutor um and there's this wonderful dressing down and the fact that he stands was like i'm not going to engage with you it's this wonderful model of, and you're just like yes absolutely brilliant that's a great moment and that's how we want to feel and it gives us great right. advice to be like yeah showed you the way the episode ends though <sighs> It's the same person and it cuts yeah. the scene and it doesn't challenge it in the episode, which usually I'd be against, but the way the show works is it, it wants you to experience yeah. discomfort. It is challenging it for inclusion. It's very formally clever again. But then that same person who you were like, yes, get her, right. just goes on this, I can only say Zionist greed that's just repulsive. Yeah. And you're Horrible. just like, oh my God. And it again, it's this great reminder that only non-fiction reality tv can actually show being like this is not an arc this is not a character yeah this is a person and you know we do not cheerlead for people like people will disappoint and right are like messy and complicated and and maybe horrible <laughs> like, yeah like people are three-dimensional and you and that's bad <laughs> right like it can't like it can be mm. like you're you're if you only present like this woman as teaching a class then you're like cool she's teaching part of her culture and that's great and then you see the third dimension, which is her reality of, oh, this person is a horrible Zionist yeah. and just has a horrible philosophy behind all of it. And then you're like, oh, Especially right. earlier, she was like, can't you realize that you're being prejudiced? And you're like, right. can't you realize that? I just, oh, God. It, it's, and again, the, the show just lets it sit there. Yeah. And lets you just feel that. And you're like, I, and the show is very good about complicity of like, yeah. making you think about what it means to watch this thing your relationship with it our relationship with culture etc it's and it gets that through awkward comedy it's 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 it's, it's very smart in that way and then we get to the last episode which again whether we've talked about is this wonderful thing about what did the experiment mean and ultimately maybe not that much and that's kind of okay and that's really yeah cool. yeah like i i love that final realization of like we have done all this work for me to ostensibly like have this grand realization and the grand realization is like maybe life is just it should be the way that it is yeah and it's like that's i think that's beautiful like in, yeah, in, totally in a great way it's amazing he has this wonderful art for, it, it, it is you realize in the end this was all about self-realization for nathan fielder even if it's very like contrived to be that way and it's not about reality in that way it's not about what this thing right do. it's just about the yeah i learned a thing and it's 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 very pretty very wonderful so yeah that's the rehearsal you've watched it i'm sure that listening um very very good um obviously there are some ethical debates that people more schooled in that should talk about um it's a fantastic fantastic conversation piece it's a fascinating show it's very 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 good but do you know what else is very very good 
our listeners. Our listeners are fantastic, and they have sent us some emails. Some emails, which I would love to hear. So we have an email from a while ago here that is actually not connected to the rehearsal. Okay. Um, so I apologize for how long this took to respond to because this was a response to I, I actually am not sure exactly what episode it was in response to, but uh, blame Stephen because he ran is, away is, for a month. Is this the the, the um, happening one? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, so we have an email from Lorcan. Um, Hello, Lorcan. Hi, I was recommended the Letterbox 250 video on the Jack Davenport YouTube channel last <laughs> week. Hello, stranger. We <laughs> I know, we, I we love that. We, we don't get many of your type around here. Um, the the path so to, listening and watching. to getting to our podcast. That's wonderful that we're just discovery through that. Um, Hi, I'm not Jack Davenport. Uh, neither of us are, but Jack Davenport was on our last episode, actually. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, what a challenge that list represents. I suppose you watched The Man Who Sleeps on YouTube. To me, that ki- kind of kills the excitement. I heard, of, I heard of that film when I was watching and collecting classic French cinema titles on DVD. I have always been of a mind to wait to see something in a better way than just to watch it on YouTube in order to have seen it. Can you relate at all to that line of thinking? Yes and no. Um, yes and no. Can I? Uh, I agree. He's Go asking ahead. me, so I will respond, um, and then we'll see. Um, I, I would. I mean, I actually, I, I don't want to be too harsh here because it can come across like defensive. And thank you for listening very, very much. Um, because there is an instinct in me that wants to be like, actually, I completely disagree. There, there is a part of me that wants to be like, actually, no. Um, one, I would say also the because um, it's very easy to like rail against YouTube and watching on phones and tablets as being like anti-cinema, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I also think like we should also interrogate this want to collect as being that way as well. Of that is also can be a, re- a reductive way of being art. Like the want of collecting something is again artifacting that thing. And for me. What is important is the thing itself. And I want people to watch the thing. And totally I think agree. I also want people to watch the thing because it's a great movie. Um, um, but I think whatever democratizes art more, whatever lets people watch it more, is the most important. Art should not be commerce. It has to be at the moment because of capitalism. Hello, I'm a parody of myself. Um, and ultimately, like watching a DVD is not much better than watching it on YouTube. Like, like come on, um, it's DVD. Um, however, on the one hand, um, I was slightly chastised for the for watching the film Shiver, not in the best circumstances, and I stopped and I watched it at home properly, sound system, and it was better. There is a time for experiencing matter, but there is more to experience than the physical way of watching something. It can be yes. a time of life thing. Sometimes watching a thing on your phone can be the most intimate, brilliant way of watching that thing. Cinema can be great. Watching the cinema can make it better. Um, but I think finding the art reacting to it i actually think it's much more brilliant this film you can just watch on youtube now it's been lost for so long that's brilliant no one's making money off this that was involved anymore it's so old i love that right. the video nasties that were banned for years are on goddamn youtube and you can watch them there i think that is more important but i get it there is a pristineness to thing and there is a prestige to art but i would also be wary of when you become gatekeeping and different people access things in different way and can only access things in a certain way and the watching is more important. Yeah, I, I'll just kind of echo generally. Like, I totally agree. I think the most important thing is accessibility and people being able to watch things how they want to watch things. I would never say don't watch this because you can't watch it in the right way. Like, 
if, if this is how you want to watch something and it's the only way you're going to be able to watch something, then watch it because, it, like you said, the most important thing is the thing and watching and getting it to experience it and however yeah. you want to experience it. But also, I also don't love watching things on YouTube. And I think the... the I kind of do, reason, I kind of do, I kind of do. And that's great. Like, I... Obnoxiously, I'm kind of a quality snob, which is a whole different conversation, but like... But often the transfer you're watching on YouTube is literally the transfer you'd be watching somewhere else, like... Well, right. I mean, that depends. And I think, like... I think with the man who sometimes sleeps, it probably is. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it's the best way to watch something, and it's the highest quality, and it doesn't matter. And that's totally fine. I've watched plenty of things on YouTube, and it's totally fine. I think that the challenge that I often have with watching stuff on YouTube is, like, there's often a... There can be a discrepancy in quality, and there can be a challenge in in finding one that's actually functional. Calvin and I recently watched um, an Indian movie called Kaun. I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce it, but the the version that we watched, not great quality, and the subtitles were way off. They started off synced to the movie and then it's like slowly drifted. So by the end of the movie, the conversation in the subtitles was like minutes away from the conversation that we had seen. So it was kind of hard to keep track of the movie. And it's like, I would rather have watched, you know, a clean transfer with great subtitles, but that doesn't exist. The, The only way that we could find to watch this movie was on YouTube with these bad subtitles. It's like other versions just didn't have subs or were, you know, poor quality. And it's like, Sometimes it's just you have to watch it in a certain way to watch it. Dare I say we've been tricked as well and that it can be both. Like I just last week went to go see House uh, at the cinema um, and it was astonishing and I have never loved that film as much. I've also seen that film before and I've watched it at home and I managed to have both experiences. Like I think the thing of being like you can watch The Man Who Sleeps on YouTube and then you can also get it on the Blu-ray release and watch that way. Absolutely. I, 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 I think you can certainly do both. And that I think that is hugely legitimate. I think watching House the first time in the cinema would have been brilliant. And who I saw it with, it was their first time. But I think I got more glee out of knowing what they were in store. And right. looking at my friend. And my friend was just like, hands on his face, like, like munches the scream the whole way through it <laughs> and it was just like in pure joy that that's great because i knew what was happening and because i had the access because yeah. i could just i could just buy house and watch it that was that was brilliant to me um anyway to continue the email yes. that brings me to Sorry, Logan. i think you sold its cinematic bravura short in your description on your last podcast I, I think it's an example of perfect directing you could say it's a bit clinical that it's a demonstration of good directing as an end in itself rather than in the service of something more profound, but still. But maybe I pr- appreciate its immersive quality because I was able to see it at the cinema. <laughs> I see you've tricked me there right now. <laughs> Happening's directorial style is quite reminiscent of that of Kate Shortland's in a 2012 ah. Ger- German language film called Lore. Which, as we know, uh, Kate I. Shortland we mentioned because of the Marvel list. Yes. So very, very good. Um, i.e. camera tight on the shoulder of a resolute beautiful young female protagonist in an extremely harrowing scenario laconic strongly inclined to tell the story yeah. visually very good and then I Shortland's... This, can i just say this email is beautifully written so thank you yes Morgan. it's very well written much appreciated um and then shortland's berlin syndrome i haven't seen it but its screenwriter is responsible for nitrum to me pretty clearly the most interesting cinema release of the high summer months so look and because so of you your, just watched that because of your email look and i watched nitrum um because i wanted to come into this prepared um i disagree with you about nitrum i think um i and i think this shows like a a difference in how we approach the medium to an extent of and I think this goes back to the original question of i 
don't approach film in the same way, I think. And I'm even less so than Vaughn. I'm not as interested in like the, the presentation as I, am, as I am in what is being presented. And I agree that Nitram is very well presented. Very, very well presented. But I am not a fan of what is being presented for it that much. I think it's fine. I think it's quite good. Um, and that goes back to happening. I agree. As a piece of like clinical, immaculate direction, it's very, very strong. Direction is more than just like visuals. Direction is like how you can produce ideas and how you frame things, I think, is how I would view it. And I think in that aspect, I don't think it is very good at that. I think it's not bad at that, but I think it'd be better at that. Direction is having a framed and how you center and how you ally with. And what it allies with, I think, is is not the strong point of that film and it doesn't evoke character and direction can do that um with nitrum i'm going to recommend a film um 71 fragments of the chronology of chance that you may have seen Lorca, you may not have seen it's a michael haneke film i think it's absolutely brilliant um it is this like for those who have not seen it this kaleidoscopic collection of moments that lead up to a horrific moment of normalized violence where someone commits a crime with a gun that they've just got a hand on and Gun violence happens, and Nitram is about gun violence in Australia. It's about a thing that happened. There's a very clever job of changing the name of the person, and spoilers, but not spoilers, it doesn't show the thing. It doesn't show the gun violence. It shows the build-up, and it shows a bit of aftermath. I care more about aftermath, as we've talked about. However, I don't care very much about what happened before. I don't want the event to be explained. I don't want to look at this person and go, that's what led to that. Because right. that's not what led to that. Systems lead to that thing. It's much more complicated. I think Nitram is still a good movie. Why Chronology of Chance is brilliant is it shows you disconnected moments and it forces you to try and connect them and you cannot do that. It makes you look at people's suspicion and through that what it shows is any of these scenes could be the problem because there are problems in society. This is Haneke's glaciation trilogy. He has an issue with, with society being glaciated. It's a bit pretentious. He is right, though. There is this kind of, like, moral decay at the heart of, like, modernity that's kind of, like, always been there, being fronted by things um, and, in fact, like, globalisation, etc., etc. Um, I would watch that movie. I think it's brilliant. And I think Nitram is a very good version of a film I don't really like very much. But I do think it is good and I'm happy to have watched it as a recommendation. So I thank you for that. I'm sorry. I, just, you, I like Lorcan. I'm not sorry you had to hear that twice. Apologies. <laughs> I wonder why. Um, I, I do like your description of Hanukkah as a bit pretentious, but also right. I think that's pretty spot yeah, that's, on. That's my <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's a great director. I need to watch more of his stuff. Um, yeah. Anyway, to move on to Luke's email. Hi, Luke. <clears throat> Welcome back, Luke. Hello, Geek One and Geek Two. I don't know which one of us is which, but let's not talk about that. Yeah. Uh, not too much to say about the rehearsal. Apart I think from the actually, fact that if anything, great. we're Geek 3 and Geek 4 at the most because David and Calvin are the two Oh, geeks. you know, that's a good point. Um, yeah, Luke. Episode 1 plays along with this idea of rehearsals, but the show quickly falls into this beautiful rabbit hole of perfect insanity. Episode 4 is probably the best example of this with Nathan trying to actually become another person. Yes. The shot of him standing in that meds man's bedroom is blood curdling. <laughs> yes, it is. A uh, perfect television show from today's audience that is bound to end up doing something insane. And with that, I must head off to Door City, but will be keeping my shirts and shoes on. I, I think that's a nice little capital conversation there. And yeah, we, we totally agree, Luke. Uh, a, yeah. a, 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 a good point. Um, I believe we have a message from Calvin. Yes, we do. You know a lot about our emails here, I wonder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so what did Calvin say? Um, Calvin's email. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, Nathan Fielder's reality TV comes with a difference. It subverts what television is meant to do, I like how as decided writes. largely by networks making the same shows with small variations. My favorite subversive TV shows are Twin Peaks, a dismantling of the soap opera and detective story cut with more classic filmmaking methods and Americana, and Larry Sanders' show, a precursor to the meta show about nothing like Seinfeld that takes on the awkward unreality of talk shows. 
what are your favorite subversions of entertainment formats? Also, how do you really feel about each other? Um, I love one. Um, I think it's great. Um, this is really tricky to come up on the spot. I, I couldn't think of it. Um, but off the top of my head, I have a list of 10. Um, and actually, it's a, uh-huh. tw- it's, a, it's a list of 12, because actually one of those movies is, is three movies in one slot. Um, so let me indulge for a second, because there are so many different ways that film can be subversive. So I've got like a yeah. bit of a variety, and I've, I've emboldened one at the end that I think is my main one. First of all, um, Spike Lee's Bamboozled, um, which is... Friend of the show, Ben, and one of my favourite films. Um, I think it's absolutely stunning. It is this, like, a director who has so much, like, clout and prestige makes this really, like, combative, uncomfortable, like, hard to watch in a way that it's actually literally hard to watch because it's, like, these mini DV cameras and also because what it's about film that is just so confronting and alienating and was just, like, torn apart critically and commercially at the time. Um, and I think that's because it does everything right. Of It, it, it is so uncomfortable um to accept what it's doing and it makes you feel the ways that it should do and it is 100 percent a film for white audiences to realize their own complicity i mean it is in the spirit of marlon riggs even though it's so different to that kind of output so that is a subversive work that uses the trappings of kind of like network tv and like a low rent aesthetic that seems so smooth and is just like so spiky and nasty it, it, it's bamboozled is so uncomfortable and so subversive and is still too much for some um Here's my slot of three movies, which I call the We Made a Popular Film, Here's a Sequel You Didn't Want, um, Babe okay. 2, Gremlins 2, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, are three oh, great, yeah. hugely subversive films that you maybe wouldn't think about that. The Waterman and Woman, um, Cheryl Dunye's absolutely marvellous film, is a beautiful romantic film about, um, to, about well, about a, a, a queer black woman. Um, and it was the first film from a queer black woman um, to show... Also, just in general, actually, the kind of relationship. So it is a great formulaic film about relationships and characters that at the same time is this kind of, like, essay on, like, American history of representation and, like, racism. It's just utterly marvellous. Um, John Waters' Hairspray is the film that he says is his most subversive film. I disagree with him, but I've listed it here for that reason, because he says it's the film that audiences watched. Which is funny that to me. That makes sense. He made a John Waters movie and he tripped with watching it. And Hairspray, the original, is still great, is still clever, and is still a step further than audiences thought it would be and is great for that. Sion Sono's um, Anti-Porno is a oh, yeah. so pointedly like breaking down and tearing down combative film that you think is something, even from its title, and then is not that thing at all. Michael Haneke's Cachet presents itself Ooh. as a certain way and never gives you that thing that you think it's going to give you. And again, is quite rehearsal-like in the way of what it leaves you with at the end is not what you think they get at the beginning. Um, A film we mentioned a lot on this podcast, Paul Verhoeven's Starship Troopers, um, which people were not ready for at the time. Not the film you think it is in any way. It's subverting things. You don't realise it was playing into those things. Brilliant. Um, Antonioni's Blow Up, which is this kind of like sleazy, sexy British movie... um, which actually stars people. People want to see it because there was like popular like sex appeal people at the time, and I mean that reductively. Of like that's people like oh yeah, this has got the sexy like stars right. in it, and is not even close to that movie. Oh yeah, and the movie is totally about what you're being sold and what you actually get and what's being yeah. represented and what it actually means. And like I cannot imagine how some audiences reacted to that. There are films like The Devils, etc., where it's just like oh this is subversive, and I kind of almost right. enjoyed that, but it's just like it different number nine sullivan's travels um which is an absolutely wonderful film um third is movie which does this amazing thing of being this like 
throwdown of liberal Hollywood, um, but while also legitimizing a certain kind of picture. I don't know if you've seen Sullivan's Travels. I think I it's, it, it's you would really really like it. Okay, it, it is this manifesto on its own type of film. Where actually through comedy and goodness and entertainment, you can make something of merit. And that thing is so often like held against. And actually, the films that are often really crappy are the ones that try to be worthy. Those are condescending yeah. so often. And actually giving audience something that's entertaining actually speaks to more people. There's a great bit in Southern's Travels where an audience watches like a cartoon. And we now think of cartoons as being for kids. Actually, not as much anymore. It's changed. But cartoons as being for kids. And it's a kid's cartoon. Right. Which is like, why don't really, really loving it? There is a room for humour and like fun and that can be meaningful and profound and can be its own thing. And we should not push as, I mean, myself included, of like, you know, the the established middle class cannot speak on behalf of people and should not speak on behalf of people. Right. I, I would maybe put a face in the crowd next to that as well, actually. The rehearsal reminds me of it, of like talking about media's relationship. The last one, from I know you haven't seen, um, The Girls. The Girls is incredible. Absolutely incredible. Really Not unpopular. Sure I even time. know what that is. I'll stop it's so good. This is a recommendation from Power that I watched. Um, it's, okay. it's wildly on Netflix. I have no idea why. Someone put it on there as like a joke. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> um, 1968 um, Swedish movie directed by Mai Zetling. Now, Mai Zetling, um, she is an actor who most famously, she's in some um, Bergman movies, I think. Maybe not. She's okay. in like some, some Bergman likes. She's in, yeah, some. But most famously, she's in um, Nick Rogue's The Witches. Um, and starring in this film, you've just got B.B. Anderson, Harriet Anderson. Um, you've got basically this run of like the leading like female figures in Swedish yeah. cinema at the point. Um, and it is, oh, it's so good. It is, it's Aristophanes. Aristophanes is the same play that um, Spike Lee made into Chirac. This idea of okay. women, women go on strike and refuse sex to men until the war ends. And it's about people putting on Aristophanes and then them realising the audience of Aristophanes doesn't care and the same people you're rallying against, the same people that go to see art. And the film becomes actually like the press tour around this thing and people realising that actually that's enough, that you can't make change through just being like, look, here's a well-meaning art piece that does nothing and maybe actually it normalises and establishes those things. It's such yeah. a clever, brilliant... I could not think of a step it does wrong. It's such an important film about the limits of art and then actually shows through being the work of art it is it is genuinely subversive and brilliant and goes past what it could be and shows that we need to go beyond just showing things and start doing things. It's just phenomenal. It's on Netflix. Please watch it. Well, I will definitely check that out. I'll at least add that to my, it's just that to my watch list. Yeah. It's just stunning. Um, I don't have nearly as many suggestions as you do. Uh, that was also that was a really good, well. A that really good list. All up to my head. I'm, 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 I'm absolutely um, definitely um, reading these emails to you fresh. Mm. Um, I was the the one that came to my mind first as kind of a subversion of um, of documentary was Camera Person. Oh, because yeah, great cool. Camera Person is it's sort of like the anti-documentary in yeah, that yeah, it yeah. is it's a collection of clips from like these moments in between other documentaries mm. and. God, I love that movie so much. It's I think so it's good. just it's so, it's, it's so brilliant. I think everybody should should watch Camera Person. But yeah, I yeah. think that's such a great way to construct a documentary out of these. Like, and it, and it is kind of in conversation with the rehearsal in the way that it's like it is these moments that are like specifically the non-performative moments of 
when you are filming people for a documentary and they are being performative because they know they are being filmed, but then here is a collection of the moments where they turn off and because the scene is over, you know, like, and I think that the result of that is such a smart and awesome thing. And yeah, I can't say enough good things about camera person. Amazing shout. Great call. Um, And then also you just made me think of kind of randomly through when you were talking, mostly because you mentioned Spike Lee who remade this movie and you hated it and I haven't seen it, but Ganja and Hess for the record, is... I did not hate Gunther and Hess, I hated the remake. But just, just, Yes, just, you yeah, hated yeah. Spike Lee's remake of Ganja and Hess. Um, but I think Ganja and Hess is Brilliant, such a cool. smart, like, it's a subversion, like, of, not just of horror, but, like, of sort of, of vampire filmmaking. as a genre and of filmmaking. Like, it's such a smart, like, experimental film that has so much to say, and it's, like, so sort of avant-garde in a way. But, and I, like, I think you are such a great example of that movie, like, in the way that you watched it and it didn't quite click and then yeah. you immediately watched it again. Because I knew and, I was like, missing something. Yeah. I, what I, I was like, why don't I love this? I don't know why I don't love this. And I watched it again. I was like, I love this. <laughs> yeah. Such a brilliant movie. I, everybody got October coming up. Put Ganja and Hess in I have, your, in I your have list these, for October. I have the soundtrack on um, Vinyl Record. Um, <clears throat> oh, that's awesome. I should get that at some point um, because it is a great soundtrack. Um, and then... We've already talked a lot about Carol's Tommy, who I think yeah. does that at several points throughout his career, but also, um, also Iranian, A Moment of Innocence. Um, uh, have you watched A Moment yes, of Innocence I yet? I have. I watched that um, when I was watching for your favorite movies. Remember, I watched all your That's right. Movies. I couldn't, I um, couldn't I watched, remember if yeah, you got into it, but yeah. It's just a, a, what a stunning film. Yeah. It's kind of also like in conversation with like that documentary, like line between fiction and reality and ultimately it revealing has rehearsals in it <laughs> yeah it, it does yeah um but yeah those are kind of my my three three things that i'll mention for that um, yeah really as yeah. far as subversions of normal entertainment um thank and also i to talk about how i feel about steven because that was the second part of calvin's email <laughs> um i love steven steven's great i miss steven a lot while he was away for a very long time i was I'm sorry. Um, and i'm glad I'm you're back. back on the show yeah i'm glad you're back on the show as well anyway <laughs> my apologies for that um one last email that you might not know we even have is this from from a mole oh you did know okay yeah, there, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this will segue really nicely actually into the next section so let's, let's use this as a segue into the next section yes so thank you to my lovely wife mall for sending in an email she Hi, mole, started listening to the mole, she mole, started listening to the podcast your help, by the way thank you so much you have been god damn it just such a key ally in this process could not have done it about you I knew, I knew there was some some deception going on there. Oh. Um, anyway, um, started listening to the podcast, and at one point she came up to me and she's like, "Hey, I wanted to know." Um, yeah, just apropos of nothing. Apropos of nothing, she came up to you and asked you a question of her own design, obviously. I'm sure. Um, she came up to me and she was like, "So, how do you recommend a movie for the podcast?" And I was like. Well, you should send an email. And she was like, okay, I will, but also tell me right now. <laughs> so now I realize that there's something more going on there. Yeah, we but, need to, what, we need to work out um, what you were going to recommend. Yes, her, her question is, what is your process for deciding a movie to recommend on the podcast? And if you can hear Ripley meowing outside my door right now, I apologize. Um, Ripley's not allowed in that room, I know that. Yes, it's true. Um my process for recommending a movie for the for the podcast, so I guess we'll go right into our 
yep. recommendations for the end of the show here. I wonder what you can recommend. Let's see. Um, I, I typically I kind of I just look at sort of what I've been watching in between the last podcast recording, generally, and now. Um, if look at stuff like, that I've liked, some like dead time well, between now and then, you know. Right. Um, <laughs> it's. It's funny you say that because I decided to change my recommendation before we started recording this. (laughs) No! What were you going to recommend? Tell everyone. I was going to recommend uh, this movie Dead Time from 2007. Yes, yes, nailed it so hard. Yeah, nailed it in quotes. (laughs) Totally disconnected from a conversation I had with my wife yesterday. Nailed it! I was going to recommend that because... Really interesting Indonesian film um, that I think is totally underseen. It's like this really cool horror noir movie. Um, yeah, I've heard a lot about it. Sounds great. So. <laughs> but I changed my mind before we started recording this. I honestly could not tell you why I changed my mind, but I just thought, you know what? I can't stop thinking because to go into actually my thought process, like my thought process is usually like, what's a movie that I've been thinking a lot about that has kind of stuck in my mind since watching it? Like, the two of us, like, both of us watch a lot of movies, you know, where you're watching two, three things every day or whatever. I mean, I've I've, I've been a bit out of the habit because I've got busy. Well, yeah. Yes, you know. Ugh, Certainly. In, in better, um, and I've been very much in the habit because I'm trapped at home doing nothing yep. else. Um, some things kind of just, you watch it and then you kind of move on and you don't think about it too much. And sometimes there's something you watch and it just totally sticks with you and you keep coming back to it. And in this case... The movie that I keep coming back to is The Masters of Time, and I have to. I thought you were going to say The uh, Masters of Terrascassi then the um, PlayStation I Two Star Wars don't fighting Don't even game. know what that is. <laughs> sure, don't even know what that is. So many <laughs> Star Wars tie-in games. Um, it's from 1982. It's an animated movie. I initially watched this as part of our um, the Spooky Summer yep. Scavenger Hunt. I had it on my list as far as animated the horror because it is tagged with horror it's not a horror movie in any way whatsoever um what it is does 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 someone die in it uh yeah (laughs) sure if that's your classification i guess name a horror movie when Um, i probably could if i had more time to think but you could but continue it's like this extremely bizarre animated movie it's the the art direction is um done by mobius or moebius um yes the the master artist um the who did work yes with, and with uh, did work on the original alien um and all of these things this movie is so supremely bizarre and other people that have watched it did not like it nearly as much as me so maybe this is not the best recommendation to be making but i think that it's such an interesting movie it's I don't even know how to describe it because it doesn't even have like really a story that I can like ascribe to it, but it's just sort of this chaotic science fiction scramble of things happening. The, the art is, I mean, it's great. The character design is not, but like everything going on around it is awesome. And there's these two little characters that are like these space gnomes and they're, they're fascinating to me because they just kind of hang out with each other and kind of are observing humans and sort of 
commenting on their observations of human existence and like human oddity and i think it's just i think it's really lovely in a weird way and it's a movie that is really bizarre and probably most people won't like it a whole lot but it's really stuck with me because i think it's super fascinating i'm Um, I'm intrigued sorry for not recommending the movie that i said i was going to we've already heard you make the case that's fine (laughs) um I, so, as listeners know, I probably would recommend um, May 15th, the new old Claire Denis movie, um, but, you know, why why not make two recommendations, because Vaughn got two. So, um, I'll let my case for May 15th stand, and I'm actually going to recommend um, Quelque Verbes um, de Noir Matier, um, which is an underseen Agnes Varda movie. Um, I finished her filmography oh, okay. recently, um, and this one, um, even people that have got really near to the end of the filmography have not seen this. This was like a, a I think it was a made for TV documentary. Um, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. Um, it is about um, oh god, it's, this is it's, it's, this is perhaps gets sad. It is about widows in the town of Noamutia, which is a fishing village, and it has this like motif. You know that Elizabeth loves beaches. Um, it has a motif in it of these men who went to sea and 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 in a wider symbolic way didn't come back and like dealing with, with aftermath and it's just these these women being allowed to speak about their things and Varda listens and it's hugely emotional um, loads of Varda's work is intrusively about her in this beautiful way and I love that this is subtly about her of this is a film 100% about her still trying to deal with the death of her husband her beloved husband um, and what that means to her and you'll have seen the shot from it because it's used in this the shot I think originates from um, maybe Jaco de Nantes I'm not sure um, it may be from, from elsewhere it may be from the um, the biopic she made about the world of Jacques Demy also i forget but that shot of like her sat on a beach in one chair and a chair next to her being empty and that is like the speech that she gives it's just it's 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 really beautiful wonderful it it, it shows a lot about these people and how we define and narrowly define people what they actually are and it's a great way of entirely being about something while not actually expressing that thing and it's just really beautiful and just yeah it's just it's just great please watch it I, this is the second time you've recommended a varda documentary on this podcast i she's the graceful microphone time that's why um <laughs> Oh, I'm not saying it's a problem. It's just a, a note. Yeah. I recently was going through. I was like, I, I don't have a. I didn't have a compilation of everything I'd recommend, and so I was listening through to make sure I had everything put into a list. And so I was re-listening to your recommendation of uh, Murmurs. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Murmurs is so great. Watch, watch Murmurs as well. There you go. Um, so um, you can find us on social media platforms, etc. I am the Stevage. I think on Twitter you are zero zebra on twitter but just zebra on letterboxd.com correct um you can join our discord where as we know vaughn is a mod and he's always talking about how he's a mod of that discord and that's how he advertises himself i'm a mod of that discord is the kind of thing that he would say join the discord because i'm a mod if you go to the twingeeks.com the community tab go there um our other shows are excellent as part of the Twin Geeks network list of them um the daydream cast is going to pax we'll get some great stuff from that yeah that'd be awesome um altman twin geeks um, is, is, is going strong loads of great things happening keep listening things being added all the time it's, it's a great collection of stuff um, however that's all the time we've got for today so Vaughn do you have any kind of like pithy sign off for us? <laughs> I do I have my, my, my regular sign off for this show since we are done for this week mm-hmm. until next time I am thinking of ending this podcast thank you so much for listening so many times and I'm sorry it was so long <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha